following message was given at Emmanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Well, if you will, join me in your Bibles in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, in our evening services, we have been going through Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. And this evening, we are in verses 21 through 31 of Galatians chapter 4. Uh, There's a little cardboard book that I'm sure many of you are familiar with that I think over the years I've read to my children when they were younger, no less than 15,000 times, a conservative estimate, of course. It's called, Are You My Mother? It's a classic work of literature. And given its length and its complexity, It gives me hope that one day I too can publish 100 words and make millions of dollars. (laughs) It's a story about a baby bird and it's hatched from the egg when the mother bird is away. And so instead of waiting for her to return, he decides to go looking for her and he throws himself out of the nest in the tree onto the ground, and he walks around asking various animals and objects that they are his mother. The baby bird asks a kitten, a hen, a dog, and a cow, and then the baby bird comes across a massive excavator, which he calls a snort, and wonders if this is his mother. Thankfully, the snort lifted him up and up and up, And he was placed back in his nest in the tree. And just then the mother bird came back and said, I know who you are. You are not a kitten or a hen or a dog. You are not a cow or a snort. You are a bird and you are a mother. $4.99 plus tax and it's yours. (laughs) But this story highlights an important question that isn't often asked. But it is one that is brought to the forefront in Paul's argument in our text. As we've been looking through his letter to the Galatians, we've been shown in a few different places that those who are Christian Jews and those who are Christian Gentiles can both claim Abraham as their father. Remember at the end of chapter 3, Paul said, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. But of course, the natural descendants of Abraham were the Jewish people, the Israelites, who could rightly claim Abraham as their father as well. So what does this mean? Well, a lot of different conclusions have been drawn as Christians have sought to understand the implications of what Paul uh, directs us to, But the really important question that we need to ask, which is exactly where Paul has us this evening, is not so much about Abraham being our father, but rather looking at two different women and asking each of them, are you my mother? We will see two women, we will see two sons, and each of us needs to consider which one is my mother and which son am I? 
Now remember, if you were here last week, Paul sort of poured out his heart to the Galatians as a pastor, giving them high praise for the way that they cared for, uh, cared for him as he was in their presence, how they received all that he was preaching to them as truth, even as though it were from Jesus Christ himself. But now they're turning on Paul. Now they're moving toward the false teaching of the Judaizers, and he shares his anguish over this because his greatest desire from them is, for them is to see Christ formed in them. And without a right understanding of the relationship to God as new creations in Christ, that's impossible. And so now in this passage, Paul is giving the Galatians counsel from the scriptures. He's saying, listen, you loved me, you would have given your lives for me, and now you are turning from me, and you are believing a false gospel. And let me tell you why things have turned out the way they have, and I will do so by giving you an example from the scriptures. And then he launches into the text that we have before us. So let's read Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers like Isaac, are children of promise." But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman." Well, the first thing we see is a historical argument where Paul teaches us in verses 21 through 23 that your freedom cannot be obtained by works of the flesh. Now, it's important for us to remember the historical event that Paul is referring to in order to understand the thrust of his argument. His reference is to Genesis chapters 16 through 21. It's all very likely familiar to most of you, so I'll just give us a summary of what took place to help us orient Paul's argument through the story of Abraham and his wife and her maidservant and the two sons who were half-brothers. Hang with me, some of this uh, can get a little confusing as you try to connect all the dots of who's who. 
But God had come to Abraham and to Sarah, and he said, Abraham, Sarah, I'm going to give you a child, and I will do so through Sarah. From your child, you will have a great family, you will have many descendants, and you will be a great nation. This was God's plan to begin the nation of Israel. So God promised them, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited, but nothing ever happened. And so eventually, Abraham and Sarah were, in good biblical language, advanced in years. In other words, they were very old. So biologically speaking, Sarah having a child was an impossibility. She had a barren womb. So what does Sarah do? She eventually turns to Abraham and she says, look, it'll be a miracle. I am barren. I am desolate. I have never had a child. Therefore, I am marked in our culture. I am ashamed. There's only one thing you can do to remove my shame. Now, in that day, if a husband had a child with a slave, who in this case is the slave of Sarah, the child of the slave woman actually becomes the legal child of the wife and not the slave. So in Sarah's mind, her husband, Abraham, would get her slave girl pregnant and she would then have a child for God to use to fulfill the remainder of his promise. And so Abraham had a choice. He could either get a family through his own human ability Or he could wait and get a family through God's miraculous ability when he fulfills his promise. So what happens? Well, Abraham decides to follow Sarah's promptings. He says, we're essentially, we're not going to follow. We're not going to wait for God. We're not going to get a family through the working of God. We're going to get a family through our work. And we're going to do it in such a way that we have control over it. Something that we, in our own human ability, still have the power to do. And so Sarah says, I I can't have a child, but you can have a child, so let's do it this way. So Abraham and Sarah, they unfold their plan in their own human ability. And eventually Abraham impregnates Hagar, and together they have a son named Ishmael. In other words, Abraham tried to accomplish God's purposes by the flesh. And that's a very important statement to remember here. He tried to accomplish God's purposes by the flesh. He is no longer living by faith. In this moment, he is living by the flesh. He's using ungodly means in a vain attempt to accomplish God's purposes. Then what happens? Well, Hagar feels a bit prideful towards Sarah because she now has a child. Sarah is jealous of Hagar having a son, even though it was her idea in the first place. And so she wants Hagar put out into the wilderness which meant she would be without a home, she would be without provision, she would be without any protection whatsoever. It meant certain death for Hagar and Ishmael. Eventually, God visits Abraham and Sarah once again, and you know the story. Through a miracle, at 90 years old, Sarah gave birth to a son whose name was Isaac, who eventually becomes one of the patriarchs of our faith. So, To make sure, we have the two categories that we need to understand Paul's argument. Abraham has two sons, one which he had through the slave Hagar, 
and the other through the free woman, his wife, Sarah. And this is a very important distinction for the Jewish people because the issue of physical descendancy is such a huge source of their pride. Now, Paul is assuming that his readers are familiar with this whole narrative and the outcome of everything, and he reminds them that Abraham had these two sons, and because of who their mothers are, one is born a slave and the other is born free. They have the same father, Abraham, but the outcome of their lives is completely different. So Paul takes this narrative and he draws a few conclusions, helping us to further understand the relationship, the vital, critical relationship between the law and the gospel. And something he he has uh, really hit home is that all of us inherently drift toward legal-minded, legal-hearted approaches to life with God and with our neighbor. Now, I assure you that if you ask 100 self-identifying Christians the question, how do you hope to go to heaven, a majority percentage of them will answer with something along the lines of being the best person that I can be or working hard to do what God requires of me. But what's wrong with that? That is a legal understanding of salvation. And it's the same type of response that Paul is responding to in verse 21. He says, do you not listen to the law? In other words, do you not really understand what the law says? Do you get what it demands? And, and, and here's really where Paul drives the point home in our text. Do you understand the distinctions that the law makes? Do you know what it demands? Not all the sons of Abraham are sons of promise. Not all the sons of Abraham are among those who are saved. That is an important distinction that even today raises much confusion in the church. And so the question really then If everyone is a son of Abraham in these two instances, under Ishmael as uh, as the one son or under Isaac as the other son, the real question that has to be asked is, who is your mother? In verse 23, Paul identifies for us the primary issue. It's not social status, it's spiritual condition. Now notice how he says this here. The slave son Ishmael is born of the flesh. The free son, Isaac, is born of a promise. So here's Paul's point from this historical perspective. Physical descendancy is not enough. Paul addresses this directly in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. He says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. So a way for us to conceptualize this today is to say, don't think that you're going to heaven just because your grandfather was a deacon or your daddy was a pastor. Your godly ancestry does not secure your salvation. 
Just because someone was born as a physical descendant of Abraham does not mean in any way, shape, or form that they were right with God and that they would be saved. It always comes down to personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because in the end, that is all that counts. So now Paul looks at all of this and he says, we can use this example of Hagar and Sarah and Ishmael and Isaac and look at it allegorically. And so he shows us in verses 24 through 27, who your mother is determines whether you are a free or a slave. And by that, of course, I don't mean your actual physical mother. I mean uh, either Hagar or Sarah. Now, there are volumes of literature written about what Paul means exactly by saying in verse 24, now this may be interpreted allegorically. But I don't think it's that difficult to understand. Paul's not saying that the Genesis narrative is allegorical in the same way that the Pilgrim's Progress is allegorical. Paul is reading this historical narrative of Abraham, his wife Sarah, her maidservant Hagar, and the two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. He's reading it all as historical narrative, true fact, something that really happened, and it's filled, however, with symbolic representations. In other words, embedded within the real people and the real historical events are two contrasting births of two sons, one by natural order and one by divine promise. And they can be understood allegorically. So the text of Genesis itself is historically true. It really happened. However, there is something to be learned allegorically from this historical narrative. I hope all of that makes sense. I've really just distilled a scholar's entire academic career for you into about three sentences. But there's much written about these things and we just have to be careful to to not overextend the statements that we read sometimes in the scripture. So now, what does Paul say can be understood allegorically? He draws our attention to the primary covenants we read about in the Old Testament. And we've discussed previously as we've worked through Galatians. Hagar, the woman of slavery who bore a child by flesh, is representative of the Sinai Covenant, otherwise known as the Mosaic Covenant. It is God's law. It requires strict adherence. Its only promise is blessing for obedience and a curse for disobedience. And yet... The perfect obedience that is required is impossible. And so Paul looks at the nature of the Sinai covenant and he says, it's slavery. It's slavery. And the actual biblical account of Hagar in Ishmael sort of extends this allegory as well. When they were put out by Abraham because of Sarah's jealousy, they lived in the wilderness which was in the Sinai Peninsula, in the desert, outside of the promised land. And so we can say that in her slavery, in her bondage, Hagar was living outside the church, as are all the sons of Hagar. And so there's several things going on here. You see, there's many layers to this. We have the issue of spiritual bondage or slavery, which is related to Hagar being a slave. 
We have the issue of self-righteousness and self-effort, which is related to how Ishmael came through the self-efforts of Abraham. We have the issue of being set outside of the people of God, as we see that geographically with Hagar and Ishmael in the wilderness outside the place given by God for the people of God. So Hagar, the mother of the son of works righteousness, represents God's law given at Sinai, which the Jews have misconstrued as a way of right standing with God. And that is, they're believing and they're saying and they're preaching and they certainly were living this way. If you want to live by works and seek to earn your salvation by law keeping, Hagar is your mother. In Romans 9, Paul says Hagar and her descendants, those who did not pursue righteousness by faith, but as though it were by works, were in slavery. They were bound to a futile legalism that could never be a means of earning God's favor. Now here's the shocking thing that Paul says in verse 25. Hagar corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. Okay, so if there is any chance that there was one of the false teaching Judaizers who wasn't offended by something that Paul has written up to this point in his letter, he has just sealed the deal. The only rival to this perhaps would have been when Jesus told the Pharisees that the father was, their, was the devil. But these are some serious fighting words that Paul is writing to them here. There's really no way for me to overemphasize the fact that for the Jews, their lineage, their their family lineage, their ties back to Isaac, back to Sarah, and back to Abraham are a huge deal. They always want to highlight how they're the, the sons of Abraham. They're the people of Abraham. It was a badge of honor. It was a badge of superiority for them. And let's be clear, they didn't mean the slave child Ishmael kind of child of Abraham. They meant the children of the promise like Isaac kind of children of Abraham. And so Paul says, if you are living according to the law, if you are seeking to live according to the law in order that you will be saved, in order to secure your own right standing with God, you are a son of Hagar. And he puts the entire Jewish nation in the same category. He says, Hagar corresponds to present-day Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is a symbol of the nation of Israel as a whole. Paul is thinking about the Jews of his own day, and he's saying that they are in slavery. They're in bondage. And this has nothing to do with Roman occupation. Their slavery was a spiritual slavery. And it was to be traced to their gravely mistaken thinking about the law of Moses that was given at Mount Sinai. They believed that the the old covenant remained enforced, that they were still bound to observe the law for a right standing with God. Even though with the coming of Christ, God's way of relating to his covenant people had dramatically changed. They were endeavoring by means of the law to attain a justifying righteousness, a use to which God never intended. And so what was the result? It was burdensome. 
It was lifelong, and yet it was ultimately a futile pursuit of what the law could never give. So once again, Paul presents the damning result as, uh, uh, as a result of the teaching of the Judaizers to the Galatians, that they must essentially become Jews. Remember, we've seen all along, they're telling the Galatians they needed a connection to Jerusalem, they needed to follow Christ, they needed to have faith in Christ, but they also needed to follow the dietary laws, they needed to follow the practice of circumcision, They look at all the glorious things of the Old Testament scriptures and all that it says about Jerusalem and they say we need that connection in the same way that we have always had as the Jewish people. But Jerusalem was destined to become derelict and desolate and it did. And so from Paul's day forward until Jerusalem's destruction in AD 70, Jerusalem was a picture of Mount Sinai. It was a picture of bondage. That's Paul's point. If the Galatians turn to Judaism, they will be returning to bondage. So what's the alternative? Not Jerusalem below, not the earthly Jerusalem. She's being destroyed. Look at verse 26. Paul says, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. So Paul gives us yet another layer here. True Jerusalem, Paul writes, is our mother. Who is the mother of the people of God? It's the church. And who is our mother by way of spiritual union to Abraham? It's Sarah. So you see, the true Jerusalem is the people of God, not by flesh, but by faith. As Abraham's spiritual seed, Sarah is our mother. Isaac is our brother. And we are the church, the true Israel, the spiritual residence of the true Jerusalem, or as Paul says it, the Jerusalem above. That is the heavenly Jerusalem of which we are all citizens when we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we, brothers and sisters, we are God's holy city. Martin Luther wrote, the heavenly Jerusalem is the church. That is to say, believers scattered throughout the world who have the same gospel, the same faith in Christ, the same Holy Spirit, and the same sacraments. This church goes on giving birth to children until the end of the world as long as she exercises the ministry of the word, for this is what it means for her to give birth. So you see, we have a continuity with those who were saved in the Old Testament, in the very same way as all who are in the New Covenant are saved as well. We are united by faith to all who are or ever were in Christ. Abraham and Isaac and Moses and David and Elijah and on and on and on we can go. So the church doesn't replace Israel. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. The church doesn't replace Israel. It's simply that true Israel always has been the church in a real sense. The people of God have always been the people of God, saved by grace, through faith, apart from works of the law. And so we Gentiles, we have been grafted into this tree of faith that was already growing and flourishing and bearing fruit. 
God didn't cut down the old tree and plant a new one. He didn't plant one next to the one that was already growing. He grafted us in to this tree that already existed. He cut off the old desolate branches, which was unbelieving Israel. Now in verse 27, Paul quotes Isaiah 54. And his aim is to prove that the children of the promise, the church of God, isn't one people group in the world, but instead are gathered out of all the nations. And it's not by any preparation on the part of the mother. It's not by the mother's self-effort because she is barren, but they all come to be the children of God, the children of Abraham and Sarah by the free blessing of God. In time, Paul is saying, Those who follow the way of faith will outnumber those who follow the way of the Judaizers. Sarah's spiritual children will outnumber Hagar's physical children. The Gentile believers would considerably outnumber the Jews. So you see, one covenant leads to freedom, the other leads to slavery. The way of the law is on the wrong side of history. Stay there and you will not be where the Holy Spirit is going. Ultimately, it loses and if you're there, you lose with it. Now, at this point in the letter, all of this sounds quite familiar probably to many of you. This is a more significant explanation of what we call the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. However, Paul's already covered this ground in some regard. So, So what's the point? What is he getting at, having now returned to this earlier theme? Well, Paul is showing us, verses 27 through 31, that if you are in Christ, you are a child of the promise. In ancient culture, for Sarah, as a woman, not having a child would leave her ashamed. It was a matter of shame. It was a matter of acceptance amongst the people in the community, especially if that child is a son. And this is why Paul uses Sarah in his allegory in the way that he does. He says, if you rely on your own human ability, sure, you'll have children. But if you rely on God's ability, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your background is, more will be your children than the children of she who is fertile. You know, this is a really remarkable promise for those of us who are Christians, as individual Christians. But it's also a remarkable promise for the church. Paul is presenting children here as souls. That's really his focus. And you know, we need to hear God's promise here. It's really easy to labor in God's kingdom, to be the church, to do all that God calls us to do week in and week out in the local church, seeking to be faithful in all that we are and yet still be discouraged because we are so often set on wanting to see tangible results. We want to see people coming in the door. We want to see people getting baptized and having their lives transformed. And, and, and by God's grace, we're really enjoying a season of that here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. And we praise God for that. It's a wonderful, wonderful blessing. But what happens in the future if and when the Lord simply has us return to a season of steady faithfulness? What do we do? What do we think? 
Do we conclude that the Lord is no longer blessing us? Do we conclude that he has forgotten us? Or worse, yeah, do we, we change everything about the way that we do ministry or preach or interact with the world around us? No, we need to remember his promise. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Do we, do we face some kind of degree of embarrassment in the society around us? Maybe, but who cares? If we obey God, instead of getting our shame and nakedness dealt with, instead of getting our righteousness, instead of getting our worth from fitting into the world's ideas and even some of evangelicalism's ideas of what we should be, fitting into what everybody said, we should think and we should be reminded instead we're going to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are going to rely on what he says about us and what his righteousness is. And we have this promise, you will have more children. You will be more fruitful. God loves to work through people like you. So tell me, what is the story of your life? I don't care if you've been a hitman for the mafia. I don't care if you've been to the depths of degradation. I don't care if you've walked up to the very gates of hell. If you come to Christ and say, I will clean my life up, That will just give you more slavery than you ever had before. But instead, if you say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, more will be your children than the fertile person, the beautiful person, the person who seems to have it all, who instead is through his or her own human ability seeking to cover his or her nakedness. More will be your children. Do you remember back in verse 20 from last week, Paul calls these people who? What does he call them? My dear children. They were Paul's children. Now Paul hardly had a home. Paul was always being beaten. Paul often lived in disgrace. Paul lost his career. He had a promising academic career. Paul was a hunted man. Paul died in exile. Paul didn't have any children. Or did he? Yes, he did. No matter who you are, you will be fruitful if you put yourself in his hands. Greater, be glad, O barren woman who bears no children, break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And the proclaiming of that gospel and all who come to be the children of God Paul, through Paul's preaching, he's saying, you are my children. I am, in, in a sense, I'm your, he's saying, I'm your spiritual father. You are my children. And he's delighting in that. And this is why his heart is so broken because they keep looking to live instead, once again, in the slavery that they were already freed from. 
And friends, there are some of you here who are under the slavery of sin because you, you continue to walk through this life opposed to God as a rejecter of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you, there is freedom from slavery. There is hope. If you trust in Christ, he will give you the grace to repent of your sins. He will give you all that is necessary that you can be a faithful, fruitful disciple of Christ as a part of the true people of God who have the great promise that we, like Isaac, are children of the promise. And so the call is to turn to Christ, to put your faith in Christ because he and he alone offers you everlasting life, a life of hope, a life of peace, a whole life in the whole Christ. Now I'm not promising anyone that life with Christ is easy or that it's free from challenge or difficulty or pain or suffering. No, the Bible actually teaches us quite the opposite. It's a rewarding, freeing, joy-filled, hope-filled, everlasting life, but it's not a persecution-free life. In verse 29, Paul turns back to the story of the two sons and the respective mothers, and he alludes to Genesis 21. When Isaac was being weaned, he was probably around the age of three or so, his older brother Ishmael, who was 14 years older, he began to mock him. And Paul declares that mocking to have been a species of persecution. And he says that the very same thing is happening in his own day. He's thinking of Christians who are now suffering at the hands of the Jews. Just as Ishmael persecuted Isaac, so those of whom Ishmael is a picture, the Jews in spiritual slavery were persecuting those of whom Isaac was a picture, namely those who were spiritually free, both Jew and Gentile. And history since then has continued to repeat itself, but on a much broader scale. But despite the persecution of the church, despite the hatred shown towards the people of God, we can still see the graciousness, the love, and the kindness of God. In his providence, God was very good to Ishmael. But in the end, it would only be Isaac and his offspring who would enjoy the blessings of the inheritance God had promised to their father Abraham. That family line alone would inherit the land of Canaan by God's people. And for those who are Isaacs, children of the promise like him, there is an inheritance. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you are a child of promise like him. You have a great inheritance. It has been promised to you. It has been given to you. And even here and even now, we enjoy many of the fruits of it. God in his providence is certainly good to the whole human race. But it is only those who have faith in Christ whom he has made his heirs. God has an inheritance for believers, a first installment of which we already enjoy in our possession of life and in the Spirit. One day, he will assuredly bring us into the fullness of that inheritance because we, brothers and sisters, are the children of Abraham, the children of Sarah. We are the children of God. What a tremendous blessing. Amen. Let's pray together. 
Father, we are so very grateful to be called the children of God. We are so very grateful for the promises of your word that as we walk by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are counted among your people, the children of Abraham and Sarah, Lord, those who have been set free from the bondage of slavery, those who have been set free from trying to earn your favor, those who have been set free from the covenant of works and have been marvelously brought into the covenant of grace. We thank you, O God, that by faith and faith alone that we come to you and that you pour your grace out into us and upon us and you work your will through us. We are grateful, O God, to be your children. We delight in that great blessing and we pray, O God, that you would help us. Lord, you are so very patient with us. We pray that you would help us to live each and every day as children of the promise, as children of our great God. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.